People love it. I, I love it. You know what? Actually, let's just, let's just do it. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the discourse. I am your host, Brandon. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, you may know him from the popular podcast, Chapo Trap House. Uh, mo- m- I know him from his appearance in uh, They Live as the man who busts through on the TV every so often when the homeless men are watching it. Uh, Matt Chrisman. Hello. Say hello, John. Don't be rude. Oh, sorry. Hey, uh, John, back again. Today, we had Matt join us because I personally, I don't know if Matt or John have noticed this. I've noticed a troubling trend within the liberal community. They've started to rehabilitate Bush. But honestly, we have to hurry because today I checked and they're actually starting to rehabilitate Nixon. So (laughs) by the time this episode comes out, they might be on Andrew Jackson and we'll have to just keep doing it over and over again. So let's just hop right into this, this shit. I'm going to have to defer to you two, though, because I'm at a, you, have, you have me at a bit of a disadvantage because I don't remember what it was like to live under the Bush administration because I was like 13 years old. Oh, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, it was crazy. It was really just mind bending the entire time. So, Matt, what was it like to live under George Bush's uh, rule? What was it like to live under the regime of Bush the second, the lesser Bush, if you will? Uh, the way it felt was, I remember I've described it on the show before, our show before, as having a, just a, a constant low-grade fever. Uh, but it was weird because you were the only one who felt that way. Because the real sense of the Bush administration was just that everything was awful, and it was just a carnival of human misery and exploitation. But because the economy was pretty good, the uh, it, actual political, you know, like uh, content to art to culture was relatively minimal. Like now everything is politics. Every single new uh, piece of pop culture has some political valence that's built into it as part of its appeal to an audience. That really did not exist. Like things like The Daily Show were relatively unique. I mean, you look at it, there was basically one Daily Show, right? And then there were a bunch of uh, uh, late night shows that were not really political. They would right. talk about politics, but in for, sort of a general j- mood of japery. Uh, but then, not, and now we live in a world where everything is politicized. There are 50 daily shows. Every one of the old late night shows, which used to be apolitical, are all just the daily show. Everything is hyper-partisan and panting. And, of course, now we have you know an economic and public health crisis to go with it. But there's this sense of alarms blaring. Like the entire Trump administration has been alarms blaring and even the people who love him are just screaming, but they're screaming at everyone else for being mad, and they're screaming about how much they love their man and all that, and they're shooting guns in the air or whatever. And then that wasn't the case. Under Bush, while they were doing these awful things, invading Iraq, killing hundreds of thousands of people, there was just sense that it was just normal and that it was fine and that it was part of the government process. And so if you really were opposed to those things, and because there was such a limited vocabulary for explaining why, and because left-wing opposition to it was so scattered, and 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 that of it, that which did exist was so subordinated to the Democratic Party that you just ended up feeling like you had a weird fever that nobody else knew or recognized. Right, and then like the major piece of culture that you had, or at least that Democrats had that they were putting out, the West Wing that dealt with politics, the only thing that they were talking about was, hey, let's come together in bipartisanship as Bush is dropping bombs all over the world and like shipping people off to torture sites and all sorts of crazy, horrible shit is happening. And the West Wing and Aaron Sorkin are just constantly going off in your mentions about like, well, wouldn't it be great if we had a president who could do good speeches? So like even 
the the opposition to the things that they were uh, against was purely symbolic, much like how everyone really is only pissed at Trump because of the way he speaks rather than what he's doing. Uh, what liberals are really pining for with that, it's not really that they like Bush. They hated him. They really did hate him. But the thing is, is that what Bush represents in their mind is an era when things were more together. Put blankly, when they had more political, they had more trust in American political institutions. They, because the thing is, they have lost, everyone has lost a great degree of trust in all levels of American political institutions since the Iraq war, basically, or since 9-11, really. This huge split with 9-11, actually, no. It really starts with the uh, Bush v. Gore presidential election. You have this uh, insane thing where a Supreme Court tells someone to stop counting ballots, and we just accept that as the result, which taints uh, for liberals, even though they tried to you know, suppress it and forget about it, it creates this in- intrinsic sense of a lack of a, a, a reduction in uh, trust of political institutions that's only exacerbated by things like economic downturns, you know, and wars of choice that are based on lies. And so over time, liberals have lost faith in government. Now they've displaced a lot of that faith, that that anger onto Trump and specifically onto Russia as ways to explain how they could still live in a country that allows this, but they still are in a much more impoverished sense of their trust in in their country's institutions, which they did not have under Bush. And so they're remembering that time and they're, rem- remember, they're remembering their level of, uh, of you know, comfort with the symbolic order of American life, which has now been completely reduced because they're seeing, oh, none of this stuff actually works. None of these buttons are connected to anything. Uh, all of these levers just break when you pull them. We don't actually have a government that's functional. We just had like, we had a, bu- a bunch of bubble economies that allowed us to maintain a certain degree of comfort that is now running into reality. We're Wiley Coyote at the end of the cliff. And there's no legitimate governing institutions, which was not the case under Bush, because as much as we might have been destroying the world uh, in, a, in a blind fury after 9-11, we were living in a in, domestically in a pretty comfortable housing bubble. So there was still a greater degree of, uh, of, uh, of comfort and therefore trust in the institutions that provided that comfort. And that com- that is now much frayed. And what they really want when they want Bush is they want that sense back. Well, I mean, just two things. First of all, we have something better than government. We have something better than government giving out, uh, you know, expanding the social security system, expanding the social safety net. We have Guy Fieri. <laughs> we have Guy Fieri collecting money and, and uh, you know, Giving and giving out, uh, base, basically hand, doing basic government functions instead. So, I mean, if you could choose between Donald Trump giving you a check or Guy Fieri, I know who I would choose. Yeah, yeah, for us to tip douchebag all the way. Because that, like that, that faith in that faith in like you know elements of American life, that 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 emotional commitment that people used to have to the notion of the country or whatever, it didn't just dissipate. It had to go somewhere, and one of the places it went is to like to the level of celebrities. So we actually have like we we residually. Uh, transferred, you know, basic uh, identity stuff when it comes to the nation that we live in from the political class and the political 
institutions to celebrities. Well, no, I mean, I agree. I think, honestly, one of the goals of neoliberalism is just to turn us all from, like, citizens into fans. It's to turn everyone from a citizen of, you know, everyone from a voter, uh, you know, a member of a political party, everyone from, like, uh, you know, a citizen in a city, uh, someone who has, like, I don't want to say taxpayer because that's a bad word, but somebody who has a legitimate claim to the, you know, attention and help in basically public sector uh catering to them or more giving helping them with their lives uh, and the people who are just like supposed to be glad that uh obama deigns to speak to them someone who would be glad like oh obama has taken time from his uh you know kite surfing with richard branson to tweet something to tweet a link to uh, the new jim crow amazing you know but like that was my sense too i the only thing i remember from i mean because i'm a little bit younger my first political memory was the 2000 election and my fr- and while i don't remember like the details the details of like the supreme court stopping counting i do remember this sort of like outrage within the political circles that my parents and my parents friends and my schoolmates parents sort of all operated and there was this very real sense that bush had stolen the election from al gore uh there was this real sense you know at least over course through his presidency that he was just like this buffoon getting america into these traps you know getting us into the middle east at least when they weren't sort of like buckling under the pressure of you know the media apparatus but it's it's weird for me a little bit more to watch them rehabilitate him because at least from what i can recall he was the great evil for like eight years it was like he was the great evil of the liberal class you know the great evil of the daily show uh, uh, at least every other day on daily show the skit was about like something dumb george bush had said you know just like clips and clips of george bush you know fumbling through his speech or making making a wrong uh, statement about an idiom or calling you know the president of china the wrong name and it, you know looking back on the daily show i can see a lot of sort of the problems with our political media class being you know kind of centralized and that becoming the dominant form of like liberal media under like the bush era if that makes any sense yeah, it does. I mean, you know, they, they had the, the Bushisms where they were talking about him constantly making up words and everything seems to be symbolic rather than or, or performative rather than any type of systemic or um, substantive critique. Yeah, because at the end of the day, for most uh, liberals, there is really nothing to remember about the Bush years that was ter- terribly traumatic for them personally. Their kids probably did not go to Iraq uh, and get blown up. They saw their portfolios exp- expand significantly. The economy didn't collapse until the very end of the Bush years. And it happened really so far at the end of the Bush year. I mean, it happened during the campaign, by which point any incumbent president is basically invisible. So it's almost like we phase shifted from plenty to collapse with Bush sort of disappearing at the same time. So people's memories of him are, it might, all that visceral pain, anger they felt about him it's all gone because it wasn't connected to anything. It was purely spectacle. It was they he was opposing norms and values that they believed at some level made them who they were, but he was not making their lives in any tangible specific way worse. If all, if anything he was presiding over an expansion of a bubble economy that made their lives better in the short term. And by the time he was out of office, there was it was there was somebody else to get mad at. If you it was Obama, if you were a disappointed Republican, and of course it was uh the horrible Tea Party moron Republicans if you were a liberal Democrat. Don't forget the march to restore sanity. That was that was what ended fascism in America or, or started it. I, I don't recall. Um, I don't recall the specifics about it. But no, I agree with you 
on the point of the Bush administration, like the travesties or like the um, the harm of the Bush administration not being centralized within the like the, the sort of centrist liberal media bubble or their analogs in the sort of non-media space um, because like I think when we when we saw like the height of the Bush revisionism or the Bush sort of uh, nostalgia over the past week or so there was this kind of argument that well there's a big difference between like the bog standard neoconservative imperialism of the Bush era and like the quote-unquote the fascism of the Trump age and at a certain point, like it, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, it becomes very clear that what liberals define as fascism is more an issue of like, oh, sometimes it's when they are becoming the the target of the harm that the government has been in some ways inflicting overseas or to other populations or to you know people on the TV that they would watch on a screen. But then it's also even on a more like surface level, like their knowledge of the harm that the government is enacting in their name, just generally speaking. The idea that they're being forced to you know, identify not only with like the harm the government's doing, but also the harm being done by someone like Trump, who is like the height of boorishness too. Right. I mean, it's like the whenever you point out like, oh, hey, you know, Biden and Obama built those cages and specifically said that they were meant to deter ch mothers and, and families from sending their children to the border after we destabilized multiple countries in South and Central America at the behest of capital. Because the thing is, is, they accept that there are limitations to any president's power and authority, but they uh, emphasize them to the degree to which they have an emotional relationship with that president. So both Trump and Obama supporters think that their cages were necessary. And the thing is, if you reason from the point of view of the president, then you might have some abstract point where you say, if you're a liberal, you say, but they were coming in waves. And it's like, Yes, because X, Y, Z, including the Honduran coup and things like that. But, you know, if you're president, those aren't really in your, you don't really get a choice over that stuff. And I'm sorry, like even things like the Honduran coup, that's all part of, you know, uh, a imperial management pro program that's honestly above the pay grade of the president for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so your job is just to put a, to put a, a PR friendly face on the machinations of capital and the lubricating efforts of the deep state. So... When they show up, what are you going to do? You don't want them to keep coming, so you got to put them in cages. Whatever, you can't just let them go. And so that's persuasive. But that's only persuasive to you because you have an emotional investment in, in empathizing with Barack Obama as a person. And that goes away the second Trump's president. If you're a uh, Republican, you, get, you had no sympathy for Trump as a person because you hated him and did not sympathize at all. But now Trump is your guy, and so... Sure. Yeah, they come. You got to put them in cages. And there's the same there's the same abstraction away from the cause because at the they're assuming their their point of view from the point of from the point that they have to make the choice to build a say build a child cage or do a drone strike. And they're so personally invested emotionally in the personality of the president that they immediately think like, well, he had to have a good reason, even if I don't know what it is. He had to have had a good reason because I think he's a good person. And I imagine and I imagine that he has the same motivations emotionally uh, and spiritually and the same balance of humors towards the good that I do, which is, of course, insane speculation. But that's what you do when you watch a movie. That's what you do to the protagonists of films is you import your own sense of like what you would do onto theirs. And since we have since the politics has been spectacle spectacleized, 
to the point that we don't vote because we want to see X, Y, or Z policy done because at a certain point, politics has trained us to see those problems as fundamentally irresolvable. We vote for the personality that we're going to want to root for in the position as basically protagonist of the prestige TV show known as the United States presidency. Like being the, the casting the Martin Sheen role in the West Wing for the next four years. And when that happens, you will, if you're on their side, find anything they do acceptable and condemn with every fiber of your being anything that someone you hate is doing. Well, I mean, I agree. But I think Obama was a unique, plays a unique role in this too because he was so beloved by the Democratic Party. I mean, I honestly think, and I think this is not particularly uh, controversial opinion, he was the height of the Democratic Party's sort of new neoliberal agenda. Like, he was the height of what the Democratic Party was trying to achieve in terms of like a spectacle president since they had tracked away from doing real structural changes. That's their sort of core brand proposition towards like, well, we've mastered this sort of new language of uh, symbolic of sort of social justice, you know, we've mastered this sort of like new rhetoric of the third way, right, of the of the Clinton years, uh, and when I recall there being at least for a, a a snap second, there being some real thought or some real impulse or real sort of opinion that like Obama might actually do something about what the Bush administration had done because there was the torture there was the Abu Ghraib obviously uh that sort of swept that that was a controversy over the course of the Bush years for however long that news cycle lasted which I mean now a news cycle lasting more than 24 hours is, is a spectacular but like it felt like weeks then that the Abu Ghraib photos were on television but once Obama sort of decided that he was not going to look back at all, not sort of cast judgment, I would say arguably partially for what you meant, you you uh, you argue that like you know the role of the president in many ways is going to be governed by the inertia of the military industrial complex, the inertia of like the the neo imperialism machine, and like once you're in there, you're going to be implicated the moment you take reins of that power. And but also like his lack of going back to the Bush administration and litigating what had happened there convinced a certain segment of like the liberal intelligentsia for lack of a better word that like it was cool to not hold people accountable like it was cool to not look back and only look forward like it was like the you know it was some form of you know largesse as opposed to just like power protecting power and i only really mentioned that because I, I think that you know we're seeing with the trump administration now along with the bush administration you know at the time, that accountability within our current system is just not possible. You know, they couldn't get Trump on Russia because it would implicate too many people. They couldn't get Trump on Ukraine. They couldn't get Trump on really anything. And it's looking that he he's going to be in office at the end of his first term at least. And so the myth that accountability was going to be possible post-Bush, post-Obama not looking back was able to maintain up until this point. But it seems like, at least from my perspective, like at least a few people are kind of coming to with the fact that oh yeah no this is kind of like we if you can't hold uh, Trump accountable you can't hold anyone accountable like you can't if you can't hold Trump account for whatever like the tools don't exist within our society and I would argue that like they were they were given away gladly during the Obama years which was a lot of people's sort of last step before going like oh well it's just fine you know I guess it's fine that we tortured people I guess it's fine that you know America did all those things in the name of something right. Yeah, but I mean, I, I would argue that they don't even really want to hold him accountable. You have him dead to rights on, and the government of Israel dead to rights on election manipulation. And they're not even thinking about it, not just because like Israel's our client state, but also because they really don't want 
Trump to be held to any type of account because like you said, that would implicate them. It's the, the, the myth I think of any type of accountability is what's becoming more and more apparent to everybody else. But you know, we, we don't have any accountability at any level of society to begin with. It's just like you said, more people are waking up to it. I mean, like it's quite clear Epstein didn't kill himself. And yet, that's gone from the news. Hardly anybody talks about it. The only people who are talking about it on a daily basis are like Brace and Liz, and that's it. So, you know, we, we're left with all of these holes that we are constantly trying to fill. And that's where you get, like you've talked about a lot, Brandon, about getting into conspiratorial thinking as a way of, of squaring those circles. Well, Bush was allowed to go away with 9-11. As far as, far as I'm concerned, Bush was uh, both guilty of doing 9-11 and the main, uh, the main beneficiary of the 9-11 conspiracy theory. But, you know what I mean? You're right. Like, liberals don't have any memory. Like, they have no conception of history. Like, Bush, like, you know, I'm not so concerned about, like, Trump everything accountability for what he, for what he did or did not do my you know my sort of like where i'm at is just like oh well the, why even sort of follow the liberals up with their sort of hatred of trump because in four years and eight years whenever we get like president hawley or president tom cotton they're going to be longing for trump too <laughs> they're going to be talking about how the trump years were bad but you know at least he had a hot daughter you know like it, like it, whatever they can do to sort of make the past seem more normal than it actually is i i mean i know a lot of people say that i honestly i mean it might happen, but huh, I kind of wonder if we're in a situation because, you know, the reason that people are even noticing how much different they felt under Trump than under Bush than Trump is because of how much has changed in the culture, the speed of culture, and also the material base of the economy, which has steadily eroded since that time. You know, the, the jobless recovery, which is now gone, replaced with who knows what. I think anybody who takes power, any right winger who takes power in this context, I don't know if it's going to be a situation where there's going to be a lot of pining for anything. Uh, if anything, that it's going to be too directly connected in people's minds. Because remember, Bush is able to get off because of the cooling sauna-like eight-year uh, interregnum of uh, of Obama. The eight years when everything was good, when we had the fake recovery that masked, you know, this huge hole that could never be filled. But in the short term, hey, people were getting gigs. People were getting jobs. It took a long time for the sheer brutal alienation of those jobs to kick in. But people at first were very relieved that he had brought calm and some sense of you know, uh, uh, competence to the White House and ostensibly stopped and reversed this economic collapse. And now we're in a free fall. And I think people are going to take this whole time as one big thing, like, the Trump presidency will be the opening of Pandora's box. And I think, if anything, it will deepen the uh, the rehabilitation of Bush and those guys, but it, it th that will be to put them outside of the continuum of horror that began with the opening of the lament configuration uh, with Trump's election. Because I think we're going to be dealing with, like, we're thinking, oh, you're going to be pining for Trump. Well, okay, that's an you're saying that now, but I mean... What what kind of physical, actual, material condition is the economy, is the culture going to be in, in a situation with some Trump, uh, you know, the, some next level of Trump? A system where the government, where the U.S. government actually persists significantly enough to have a federal government and it's ruled by some weird, you know, syncretic uh, uh, Nazbal type figure, some sort of, some sort of populist uh, 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 it's reactionary. 
I don't think that it's going to be anything uh, recognizably like the terrain of political contest. And I don't think it's going to be people blowing up. Basically, what I mean is I don't know how much blowing off steam people are going to be doing on social media. No, I agree. I mean, from my perspective, I think there's really two options. I mean, I can seriously talk about the liberals rehabilitating Trump, but that I think is part of the same version of the future that doesn't take into you know account climate change. That doesn't take into account the fact that the precarity that was once experienced by you know the precarity and alienation that was most that was once experienced by a small, if growing, you know, naturalized, marginalized class is now just like infecting all of society, and you know, less and less people are sort of falling into that that sort of like bucket of people who are left comfortable by the status quo, people who are comfortable enough to be able to feel nostalgia for anything. Right. So, I mean, from my perspective, like there's only really two futures for Trump. If, you know, if America keeps going down his path, like either he's forgotten or like he's looked at as like sort of the father of the new, like, you know, fifth Reich or whatever of like, of like techno McDonald's uh, fascism. Like, I mean, like there, like there really isn't, I think a world where Trump goes down as anything but an anomaly or rather the the last either last gasp of the american system or like you know we move towards you know we move towards like actual socialism or like society is fucking collapses and well i mean and if it hasn't collapsed we're gonna be because one of the one of the features of this is that the political realm gets more and more emotionally invested that's why we talk about politics more but it becomes more deprived as part of our lives which means that in a situation where you have some sort of a populist reactionary realignment that is probably going to be happening in a context in which pol politics has grown even more impoverished, more symbolically dense, but that means more present focused. Like, I don't think we're going to even remember who Trump is. That's more likely to be the case where you bring up Trump and people are going to be like, who's that guy? Because we have hype. We have created a moment of like hyper reality of hyper, hyper uh, normalization in which everything is processed as it occurs and there is no room for accumulated uh, memory or an analysis of past anything. Well, yeah, I mean, that's all outsourced now. Like that sort of memory, memory is outsourced to the media apparatus. Memory is outsourced to the media. Your ego is outsourced to any number of brands, including politicians who are now just brands. Like, you know, at this point, you know, you have people jumping in front of, jumping in, jumping in front of the bullet to like defend Joe Biden. Could you imagine explaining that to somebody like an American in the 90s? Like, oh yeah, people are going to be falling over themselves to defend Joe Biden, the plagiarist. It's like Joe Biden, like last in his class at law school, Joe yeah, Biden. Not, not even that, just talking about how trustworthy he is. Like stating his trustworthiness is something that is one of the defining features of Joe Biden when not even 10 years ago, he was thought to be one of the most dishonest people in the world. Lack of memory, honestly, is what makes Joe Biden the perfect avatar for our political system. You know, the fact that our political system has been just defined by like a collective recurring amnesia is, I think, one of, you know, what makes the fact that Trump, a Trump versus Biden debate would just be the perfect like chef kiss to the end of the American uh, era. Which is why I know we're not going to fucking get it. And I'm so pissed. Because it's the one, it would be the one <laughs> symbolic, you know, treat at, at the end of this. It, it, it would be the the candy core of the shit uh, lollipop. And we don't, we because things are too shitty for us to get it. Like they're going to swap in Cuomo after the primary, or they're going to replace his brain with like uh, uh, a, a, with that freaking uh, big blue uh, Jeopardy playing computer. Uh, so that he doesn't have to actually answer anything and he's just a shell, a hollow man shell. We're not going to get, there's just, it would be too good. So I just yeah. know something is going to intervene because God hates us 
We're not going to get Trump versus Biden in a debate, even though it would be the most amazing thing in in world, especially with, with both of them zooted to the gills on whatever combination, whatever drug cocktail they're on to maintain the focus and um, like minimal focus and and legibility of voice within, uh, you know, for a half an hour or, or two hours or however long it takes. It'd be amazing. Well, us here at the discourse are placing bets on whether or not they're going to replace Biden with Hillary Clinton. We're we're doubling down. We we hope to God that if we cannot have a Trump Biden debate, then let's just rerun twenty sixteen. Yes, I mean that is that's got to be it. It can't be fucking Cuomo. It's got to no be Biden is. or or in just an orgy of nihilism, Hillary Clinton. People are saying Hillary Clinton is not a possibility. I've been saying since the moment they since the moment they replaced Joe Biden with a deep fake, uh, when he disappeared for that week after he debated uh, Bernie Sanders and he gave his sign of life and DJ Enough's, uh, you know, life. I was like, yeah, the thumbs up. <laughs> I still think back on that that week and I'm like, you know what? In 20, 30 years, like the conspiracy theorists of that time are going to talk about Joe Biden's missing week with the same, the same way we talk about like uh, 9-11. It's like, what happened to Joe Biden? Like, where is the real Joe Biden? And Tower seven. Tower seven. Uh, the Pentagon's full of unburned papers. A lot of a lot of inconsistencies there. You know, I'm not saying anything that would get me killed, but I'm just saying that you should look into it. But no, I, I agree. It, it's America, unfortunately, does not deserve the to go out with such a climactic. Uh, resolution you know like america just doesn't have that it, it doesn't deserve it it's been too it's been too poisonous to the to the globe <laughs> to, to be allowed to have at least the dignity of like a nice bookend on its lifespan uh but i mean from my perspective like i think it, it has to be hillary she's the only one who can come in at this point and have any level of legitimacy she's the only one who can come in and be like you know what like everyone get in line no one ask any fucking questions about where i've been nobody ask me about the blood on my collar no one asked me anything no one asked me anything you know we're just going to run 2016 again and if anyone asks like you're going to have a broken hyoid bone it's just like I can see that happening i could also see amy klobuchar i don't think that we're going to get joe biden versus donald trump debate I don't think yeah get, no uh, god doesn't love us enough oh but that would be so sweet i mean i've been keeping myself like i, I frankly the, if we have elections i think that'd be pretty great you know just like i'm just excited to participate in democracy they, they canceled the elections in new york city but i've been like i've been freaking out the people in my job by like just you know all the basics on my job i just like whisper and teams messages and i'm just like do you think we're going to even have elections in, in November? I constantly make the question, though. I mean, when was the last time we had a vote actually verified in this country? I mean, that's true. And the real thing is that it wouldn't be – I doubt it would be a deal where Trump says we're canceling the – we're canceling the election, folks. No election. But elections are run by – at the state level. So you're going to see wildly different, like, protocols, no matter – considering where the corona is, like, wildly different types of uh, – like, you know, California says they're doing all, all mail ballots. And a lot of blue states are probably going to do that, but red states are probably going to say no. You got to come in, uh, and you and you ha you get coughed in the face every time you come into the, the voting booth, you know. Uh, and yeah, that's going to cause that's going to guarantee that the government that the election will be considered illegitimate by a preponderance of the losing uh, party's supporters. And that doesn't mean anything if the economy gets back into some sort of viable shape. But if the economy is in an unsustainable situation, when we have not been able to fix the, the money tubes that co connect you know, the circulatory system in the surface economy, which Corona might well have broken permanently, then that kind of illegitimacy in a system delivering that little material comfort that's a recipe for genuine crisis. Right. I mean, you can say what you want about places like Syria and and pre uh, world pre Iraq one, 
but those those governments delivered for their people for the most part you know you had people who were uh brutally kidnapped and put in places but for the most part the economies were actually functioning at a low level because you had at least some distribution that was going towards the workers and now we're seeing corporations that for the past decade have taken the majority of their money and shuffled them all to the one percent owners and then come corona time when you have like the the spigot of actual revenues just immediately drying up and they can't float themselves not only for three days but they can't float or not for a month but three days and we're sending trillions of dollars their way while meanwhile twelve hundred dollar checks that are supposed to cover you for according to munchen like what 10 months or something are taking four months to get to people and millions and millions of people aren't even able to apply for unemployment because state unemployment systems have been privatized and intentionally reduced so that people can't use them so they can keep their numbers down and now when you have this massive influx of people who need them they can't so there is and a real sense which, even if they tried to like helicopter money into the system to get the circulation bumping again that they might not be able to do it that they might have actually stripped themselves of that organizational capacity essentially been auctioned off look at the sba and it's something to remember like syria like they were doing a decent job you know of obviously it was it was uh it was a a classic clientist network you know so it wasn't the money was not evenly distributed uh and that pissed people off but what what kicked the system off of its axis was not just the arab spring it was there was a giant fucking drought in syria yep which meant that there was less material to pass around, which meant that those latent social frish, uh, fracture points became more uh, salient. And that same phenomenon, I mean, to a lesser degree of violence maybe, but that same pressure was going to persist in a political environment where I just don't think that there's any way that this election, no matter how it goes, gets carried out, will have baseline legitimacy. Like, sure, Republicans and Democrats might mutter about elections, and, they, and Republicans and Democrats sure as hell got mad about Trump losing the popular vote. But at the end of the day, they accept at some psychic level the, the legitimacy of the process, even if they just mutter about illegal aliens or something to, you know, clear off a, a cobweb of cognitive dissonance. But if there's a real material shortfall, then that illegitimacy is going to become very important in people's minds and maybe something to actually emit a horror of horrors act on. I mean, honestly, America... Especially could say guns. I mean, honestly, Americans are, despite all the guns, Americans are like the most cucked people on the planet. Like Americans, well, because we have the most stuff. We have the most stuff, and we also have the most propaganda. And like everyone thinks that they are, so everyone thinks they're immune to propaganda as well. I mean, I would even, even going to what she's about Syria. I remember when I vaguely remember when Bernie Sanders in 2016 brought up the drought as a you know a variable that led to the Syrian you know the crisis in Syria, and that was kind of hand waved away. It's like the very idea that you could draw that connection between let's say like the you know the environmental impact of climate change or drought and the very real unrest in a country is deemed as something that's a little bit too spicy for our political our political media. It's like the fact that we have a you know a a system that is basically as precarious as possible on purpose, right? I mean, I think that, you know, talking about the unemployment being just completely inadequate at this point, the the infrastructure there, I mean, I would argue it's just because, you know, they're even during this particular coronavirus pandemic, they've been trying to make sure people just don't get too comfortable. Like people don't get too comfortable with the idea that they shouldn't be working, uh, you know, for basic housing, basic healthcare, and, you know, just to stay alive. I think it's a very, you know, not if not actualized fear, a very, you know, sub, 
you know, I, I don't so, so I don't know how subconscious it is, but there are there is a very real fear within our cultural milieu that if poor people are given too much free time to be idle, they'll just turn towards deviancy, right? You know, like that. So I, I have like a real feeling that we're going to see this kind of balancing act moving forward, no matter how long coronavirus goes on, between like making sure people don't get too comfortable with the government providing their basic rights and like. Up, just like literal uprising like just literal like okay well you know what like fuck this shit let's take to the streets i think that there's a point where people are going to act but the thing is is there's going to be no coordination because there's no agreed upon understanding of the cause there are going to be people who are going to want to go to work china there are going to be people who are going to want to execute their or like uh, uh uh arrest and then try and execute their governor in front of a panel of posse comitatus sheriffs or something and then there are going to be people people who blame the president whoever it is and they're all going to be across purposes. There will be no mass anything. There will be no coordinated uh, uh, assertion of rights. There will only be haphazard and like basically as people snap, there's just going to be this uh, collection of snowballs of, of, of accumulated tension exploding all over the place, running into each other at different angles at different speeds, at different sizes. And of course, you know, as like we've seen recently, the ones that are going to get elevated the most are going to be whichever ones fall in line with whatever the Coke network is saying. I mean, looking at NPR and the AP, putting out story after story after story about the, the small business owners who just need everything to go back to work and nothing about how like the failure of, like Matt said, the distribution centers for actual spreading of or and redistribution of any type of help to the people and that those network failures have barely made any type of news. But meanwhile, you know, the uh, reopen protests are on every front page. And that's when Hillary Clinton rides in on a white horse with a novel idea to bring uh, peace back to society. One night a year, all crime is e is legal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you are allowed to use any weapons and any devices necessary to, you know... Honestly, The Purge, I mean, I always love those movies, but thinking about, like, what we're dealing with here... That's the only way I could imagine that getting vented. And we are atomized enough that we would accept that instead of like, you know, marching on Washington or anything because we don't have any agreed upon political program or group of bad guys. We could all agree to just kill each other one night a year. I've never really enjoyed The Purge as movies, but people always shat on The Purge since they first came out as being unrealistic and unlike untethered from reality and too on the nose. Now like, oh no, these are perfect. Like I think the pur I think reality has vindicated The Purge movies in hindsight. And like the only Absolutely. and the only thing that makes me think that like we're just going to go back to normal. Like this is why I kind of think that Trump will be rehabilitated in 4 years is because I think about The Purge in the fact that like one night if your logical brain would say like no one would agree to kill everybody or whatever just go on a, a murderous rampage one night a year and the next day everything is just fine again but i'm just like that's what happens all the time i was like that like that, like, that happens I'm like that what that's what happens all the time just like in piecemeal and occasionally we have like you know piecemeal by, by means of like the hurricane katrina or the hurricane in puerto rico or sandy hook or uh, any number of events around the world around las the country. vegas which like, we never fucking talk about las vegas is uh is a deep is a deep well of conspiracy theories but like you know like any like in coronavirus i think is one of the well the first in a long time uh events where like we've had like a collective trauma a collective event that we couldn't all just move past immediately because our you know our 24-hour news cycle is very prone to just go like oh yeah, it is a crisis a bunch of kids were shot like what's what's you know two days later 
what happened to those kids who cares you know now actually now it's a uh, now another group of kids have been shot unfortunately but it just is that way but i yeah, what, do you remember do you remember malaysian air flight like what was the name of that flight like that was a thing for a fucking year nobody talks about it that was the last i gotta say that was the last non-political story non-political non-corona story i think to hold a news cycle for longer than a week was yeah. the goddamn fucking plane? I remember when they brought the psychics onto the onto CNN. Do you remember when they brought the psychics yes. onto CNN? Don Lennon thought, it, "What if it flew through a black hole?" The unity that occurred in the aftermath as, of nine eleven as some kind of standard bearer for like the unity we should all be feeling now under coronavirus. But even that, to me, comes across as incredibly revisionist because, like, I, I don't remember a lot from the time, but looking back, you know. Like reading about like what the media landscape of the post 9-11 world like people losing their jobs for speaking out against the iraq war it's like that's clearly not the that's clearly not what was actually occurring right and it's it, i mean along just being weird that like you know you're, you're fawning for a president like george w bush who like is most known for like failing to take warning seriously and prepare adequately for something that which and then leading to a bunch of people dying for like this exact same thing happening again but you know that's a whole different thing but you know we we are where we are where the media like where people have now outsourced their memories to that same media apparatus who is rehabilitating bush because they have to really rehabilitate themselves too because like the bush the bush administration criminals are now part of their ranks you know now like the media the same media that whose job it was to critique the bush in 10 years ago uh the, within their same halls are like is david Frum and nicole wallace and everyone is back again everything is the same everything that was old is new Fuck, Negroponte is part of this administration. Like, we have people, and Ollie North, like, all the same fucking people are still running around. Hillary Clinton was talking about how wonderful Kissinger was, and it was Bernie Sanders, the first time I've ever heard in my lifetime on national television, anyone talking about how bad Kissinger was, was a direct result of a debate question of Bernie Sanders. Like, none of this stuff is changing because the, the same people are still in charge. Like you said, like, From is at the Atlantic, right? And he's part of the media uh, apparatus. Well, you know, Goldberg has been a, a, argued to be a, a, a prison guard, a criminal, possibly a war criminal. He's, he's running that magazine. Like we have so little accountability that it's just all across the board. Everything just gets memory hold. So we never even fucking talk about it. And I feel like I'm going insane because of it. The Atlantic is a CIA psyop. So, I mean. More like the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization monthly, in my opinion. <laughs> that is some uh, Voice of America style operation going on honestly it, it's funded by the illuminati it's funded by bill gates it's funded by the bilderberg group it, it's a lot of dark money flowing into the atlantic both the sea and the uh, magazine uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean like but I, I mentioned like david from because like he's part of this new like this new class well it feels that like they feel like they've been around for fucking ever now because they kind of have like of like never trumpers who i think it was will uh you know you may have heard of will miniker um uh, who mentioned on, on Twitter that like the Never Trumpers have become like the the base of the Democratic Party now. It's like like at least when it comes to like who the party the party aligned media and who the like it seems like higher ups are listening to or amplifying. It, it, it's always the Never Trump Republicans. It's always this sort of this population of what well, seems to be ten people who find themselves at least on the side of the Democrats as a a branding strategy for of nothing else. It's very advantageous to Democrats, too, because the thing about having a, a, a Republican in office 
is that they drive them they are driven to the right like their 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 base incentives make them do right wing shit either economically unpopular stuff like you know the tax cuts uh or cut or if they have to cutting social security although of course republicans don't really believe in deficits so they don't care and are they usually just run it's funny the only people who act like uh, modern MMT is real are Republicans in power uh, because they think America's uh, economy, uh, America's monetary like strength is based not on its balance sheet, but on its credit and its credit is the world's largest military. So there's no reason for us to ever worry that our money's not going to be worth anything. And so as a result, the more confidence you have in America as a project, the less you're going to actually care about deficits. Uh, which is why Democrats actually do care about deficits when in power when they're in power because they don't believe in America to the extent that Republicans do. They don't believe in like the Durab- because Americans have of Demo- Republicans have even at the highest levels kind of hypnotized themselves that America is like the in- indispensable and unextinguishable power on earth, uh, and that's why they're like, yeah, there's no fucking deficits. Where do you care? Why would you care? But uh, yeah, uh, I remember that. Now. Yeah. Uh, I think the way to think about it is is that uh, yes, he's not. He's not. You're saying he's. He would only be not Trump. But here's the thing: if you have projected as much emotional energy into the realm of like caring about who's president and hating the president the way that most liberals have, then the the the, the size and shape of Trump psychically is so huge that the opposite, that the that the reverse of that image of that shadow figure is just as good. So you might be like, he's just not Trump. But for them, for whom politics is purely symbolic, it has no connection to the grit of real life because, hey, you know, there's two parties and there's a lot of dumb racists out there and we can't really expect to get anything better. But we sure don't want that awful Trump in there. Then this, you say he's just not Trump, but not Trump. When you think that not Trump, you think everything is still shitty, you know, but he's not there anymore because of your level of like, symbolic emotional attachment to the office of president to somebody who has transferred all of their uh, political emotions at that level not trump is like a god he's like dr manhattan he's like the perfect human because trump is the reification of everything they hate in the world so that means not trump nega trump is everything they love in the world so even if it is in the form of pathetic loser john Kerry, flip-flop uh windsurfing bitch or in decaying rape robot, mummy man, George, uh, uh, Joe Biden. That is still to them a practically a, a demigod because of how much negative energy he represents the dispersal of. Even like the one singular good thing he had, which was the Violence Against Women Act, has, has been completely tainted by the fact that he's a fucking rapist. First of all, Joe Biden is, is, has, is known for like roundhouse kicking domestic violence. Those are his own words. I heard it at a debate. Uh, so don't, don't question his pledge to it. But yeah, so I mean, like it's, it's just a brand exercise for a lot of people. And I agree with you. I think that they've invested emotionally in the defeat of Donald Trump to the point in which they, they've, they're willing to sacrifice the entirety of the, I'll put it this way. They've lost track of what Donald Trump is supposed to be to them in like the reality. Because after a, a second there, they were talking about like Donald Trump is just a symptom. Like he's a symptom of like they they had adopted that language that the left had been using for a, you know a few months after Donald Trump first got elected, and they were like, oh yeah, he's a symptom. But you know, honestly, he's a symptom of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party's you know 
growing fecklessness over the past two, like, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. When it well, comes but I mean, even like, like you said, they adopted that language. You saw the, the Pete Buttigieg who was just, you know, an Obama clone let loose um, utilizing that language. But the thing that I'm, I'm curious about is because like everything that we're talking about, like there is a stark divide even in our society about who are the people that believe this and who are the people that don't. And if you look, it's divided about an age. And, you know, like, what is primacy in that? Is it the material conditions that everyone who is younger than 40 has had to grow up with as a direct result of the crash, the Iraq war and everything else? Or is it a matter of where people get their information? Uh, and I, I don't know, like, it's a chicken and egg situation. It is a chicken and egg. And I think the chicken that comes first is those material conditions, because it means that their politics don't meet the road. There's, there's less rubber on the road. And there's more rubber than there used to be, you know, because their conditions have declined and they've seen their children's decline. But they're still, they're still not urgent enough for them to really take them out of the symbolic realm. And I think, the, like, we watch these people create negatrumps who are, like, obviously useless time servers and corrupt board healers like Biden and think, how can they care about them this much? It's because the degree to which you don't recognize material forces shaping politics is the degree to which you are going to uh, find your... Uh, fixation to be on one party within the mechanism. And so everything bad right now, if you're a Democrat, is the, part of, is the fault of the Republicans. It is not because of some greater economic system issue. It is the Republicans. If you're a Republican, everything bad right now is because of the Democrats, because the you have, you have created a admixture of material recognition and symbolic representation of politics that has very little actual materials in it. It's almost entirely television, which is a product of leisure and emotional detachment from the world around you and the need to find it elsewhere. Uh, uh, labor, leisure time alienation, as opposed to labor time alienation, which is what poorer people, people with less, uh, um, less material uh, uh, compensation for the work that they do do have to deal with. And so that means that when this happens, you have two groups of people, the people who are non-political, who have uh, decided that politics doesn't matter at all to their, to their lives. And then of the people who do, a good chunk of them are old enough that they have formed their realm of politics at a symbolic level because they didn't even get into politics until they got older. When they were younger and doing well, they were doing other stuff. Politics was lame because it didn't matter to them because they were doing fine. Only later when they could distract themselves less with, you know, uh, going out and shit like that, do they have to put more of their psychic energy into something like caring about who's president. And by that time, they were material secured. They were the last generation of material secured Americans. And that kind of conveyor belt to apathy is not available to younger people, but it's also, it's also harder to bridge the gap because now people at that part of the gap, a part of the uh, you know in, uh, age and income distribution, are so fully invested in symbolic politics that now even if the ball bottom falls out of their material reality, they're not going to have a vocabulary. You're not going to be able to convince them as like a rose emoji leftist uh, that actually this is because of capitalism. They have an entire lifetime of having the grooves in their head reinforced and reinforced that it's the other party's fault. Oh, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I think the Democratic Party, I think, does this better than the Republican Party in some essence. Uh, you know, part of the, at least in embracing the neoliberal project of like 
disaggregating politics from power, like the way that we talk about what's wrong with society and actually the ability to solve it with any sort of real political mechanism. And I think part of the large, the, you know, the earlier generations, you know, or part of the earlier generations, uh, willingness to believe that like you said it's always been true for them you know what was going on in the news didn't really affect them in the sense that you know they were doing fine and they were insulated from the parts of the population that were not doing fine i think part of my generation you know everyone knows somebody that you know suffering is no longer suffering is no longer cordoned off to acceptable populations i think that that we first started becoming aware of that with occupy wall street you know that you know the suffering was now extending past the boundaries of acceptable past you know past the boundaries of the middle east past the boundaries of whatever uh you know project in new york city that is not part of the liberal bastion that it is and into like the upper middle class uh population right and you know one might be a little bit more I don't know. One could look at that cynically and say, like, well, now it's a big problem because, like, it's happening to white people or it's happening to upper middle class or the petite bourgeoisie. But ultimately, you know, those are the people, like, you're right, who, by nature of becoming newly alienated, becoming newly disenfranchised, becoming newly disillusioned with, like, you know, up until last week, they had a $100,000 job at WeWork as, like, a VP of mobile technology. And then suddenly they realized that, like, that wasn't going to be there anymore. And, like, the, the job market is shit. And now we're under coronavirus. Like, those are people who don't have the vocabulary or the experience with dealing with that kind of alienation to come to grips with it in, in, in a healthy way. And, you know, that like that population is rapidly expanding. We have this rapidly expanding population of socially and materially alienated people with simply no context to put that alienation within because the Democratic Party has been convincing them for the past their entire lifetime that, well, you know, the best you can expect from us is getting on TV and saying like the proper things. And ultimately, you'll just have to sort of figure out what's going on, like, what's wrong with yourself, what's wrong, you know, just through, through your own like two senses i mean from just again from my perspective like i knew hillary clinton was in trouble in 2016 when like donald trump was like championing like make america great again your lives are shit like look look, look around you know look around your small town in iowa look around your small town in ohio and you know, just think about two generations ago where your job had a, you know your father had a job at the factory your grandfather had a job at the factory you know the factory closed when you were in your 40s and now your kid went to go to U- university of santa cruz and never came the fuck home because and like now your town is dying and you know the, the democratic party the best they could do was say america's already great like no america is already fine you're all doing fine i don't have any real hope that we're going to avoid some sort of some form of of nationalism um mostly because the only people who are actually identifying any of the problems that everyone's living are for the most part on the right because anyone with any lever of power or any voice or any platform is doing their goddamnedest to try and create a world where there is no material analysis because like we've been talking about the democratic party's entire purpose is to ignore that or obfuscate it so the only people who are speaking to anyone's pain right now and any of the things that anyone's feeling are the republicans i mean like that nancy pelosi fucking ad that trump put out is just absolutely brutal it's one of the most brutal and truthful ads i've seen in a very very long period of time and the Democrats have no fucking answer for that. So even the the little slight barrier that we had between any type of like rightward populist message that is the Democratic Party is completely ineffectual and completely not up to the task of it. So I, I have no hope that we're going to avoid anything but catastrophe.
I mean, nationalism is inevitable just because so much of the people, the degree to which they are dimly aware of vectors of exploitation, they understand that they come from an international system. Now, sometimes it's personalized in the form of immigrants or like, you know, people. But I think for a lot of people, even at that level, they understand that it goes beyond that. And so there's going to have to be some sort of idea of a nationalism built essentially around the idea that we are all citizens together and have to work towards a cooperative goal of getting out of this. So it's like, I feel like, yeah, nationalism is on the agenda just as an organizing principle, but that there still is a chance uh, that we could maybe build uh, a, a productive uh, nationalism. The problem is, is that that would require something other than the Democratic Party. Uh, but the good news there is that I, they really, I really do feel like they are on a crash or they're on a crash course for uh, just complete collapse of their legitimacy in the near term. Uh, I feel like either becoming either them losing to Trump twice or presiding over a Hoover like uh, recovery from a economic disaster is going to create a left opportunity of some kind or just by virtue of the fact that they will be a vacuum at the center. Whether there will be anybody there to move in is the second question. I mean, you know, I'm inclined to agree with both of you in terms of, especially with terms of what Matt said. I think the key now as a leftist movement, at least, you know, as a leftist content producer, in my opinion, is to understand that all the liberals, all the Democrat Party is going to continue to do is alienate more and more of their kind. Or either through demanding that people prostrate themselves for Joe Biden, who is visibly not all there and also visibly has very real problems with women, or by continuing to pretend and promote a media that is fine saying that everything is either A, going fine, or everything is the responsibility of like this amorphous Russian threat to make you think that everything is not fine. Uh, and so, you know, I think the Democrats are playing a dangerous game by, you know, hoping that things get so bad that people don't want Trump, but still think that they're actually effective enough to be worth investing their time in at all. You know, I think that that's from, you know, where I'm at. Where it's like, okay, well, you know, at this point, how effective is the Democratic Party actually going to be at resisting or implementing anything that's going to protect us from the rise of, you know, the eco eco fascism or a Repu or a Republican Party or a, a fascist movement or a nationalist movement that is no longer like content to just like fuck around talking about like removing the uh, the the Native American woman off of Lando Lick's butter. I think that we're like we're we're moving until the Democratic Party is actually is actively removed as a barrier to like getting the leftist message into like more people's hands. They they're going to continue to amplify like neo like, further and further right figures to make sure that they're like that they just seem better by comparison and that makes them very dangerous. That makes them very dangerous to me, at least personally. They're going to continue to amplify people like Trump. They're going to continue to amplify people on their platforms like the you know the intellectual dark web just because it you know serves as a decent comparison now that they have fully folded into never Trumpers. Right. That's all I got. Thank you. I want to say uh, thank you for joining us, Matt. It was a pleasure to have you. I hope you had a little fun. I hope you, you know, didn't mind my earlier barb. <laughs> no, thank you very much. Happy to come on. A lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. It's, it's a dark time. Everyone is tired all the time. It's always raining. I'm, I have a vitamin D deficiency, but, you know, we're still coming together, still putting out content. Oh, yeah. Still, uh, Every you know, day. Ah, that grind. Rise and grind. Rise and grind. 100%. Uh, rise and grind and trap or die. Thank you.